Hi there, this is Darren Spoo, pastor at First Baptist Church in Tulsa, and welcome to our weekly message podcast. We would invite you to join us in person Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 o'clock in downtown Tulsa, or check out our webpage at tulsafbc.org. God bless you, and have a great week. So uh, you probably don't know the name Alexander Schmeeman. If we were Russian Orthodox, you would know his name immediately. He was very pivotal in Russian Orthodox reforms. But before he became a church leader, he was just a punk, okay? Most church leaders before they were church leaders were just a bunch of punks. So he was living in France. Again, he, he was a Russian. He spoke Russian. He was living in Paris with his fiancée, and they were riding the subway one day. And a woman steps onto their train, onto their subway car, and I just picture kind of a Mother Teresa type. Very old, she's wearing a Salvation Army uniform, small, decrepit, steps on board, sits down. And Alexander Schmeeman turns to his fiancée, and he says, I have never seen such an ugly woman in my life. Now, he's talking in Russian, right? And they're in France, so she probably sees her, so she's talking in Russian. I've never seen such an ugly woman. A couple stops later, this lady gets up to leave the train, and she walks right by Alexander Schmeeman, and she turns to him and says in flawless Russian, I haven't always been ugly. And she stepped off the train and stepped out of their lives. And Alexander Schmeeman goes back to that as being one of the pivotal events in his life where he says, and in his words, he'll say, my vision was seared. Another way of saying that was he saw something new that he had never seen before, and that is the deep beauty of a person that goes beyond the surface presentation, right? Hopefully, we've all learned that lesson. This morning, I want us to see something beautiful, and here's what I want us to see. I want us to see the beauty that you can meet God. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9, and we're not going to read all of Hebrews 9. We're going to take just a few minutes and kind of like a a flat stone skipping across the water, uh, we're going to hit on some things. And I see right now many of you fanning yourself. I know it's a little bit warm in here, so I'm going to cut the sermon down to just three hours. So (laughs) you're welcome, right? I know it's a little warm. But it's times like these that where, where I think there's a distraction, there's every reason for us to lean in and listen closely. So instead of feeling the heat, let's see something beautiful today. So this is Hebrews chapter 9. I'm just going to start in verse 1. Oh, by the way, before I do this, in the Old Covenant, in the Older Testament, in the old way of doing things, if you wanted to meet with God, you had to meet a couple of criteria. You had to go to the right place. You could only go to the temple in Jerusalem. That was the place where God was said to dwell. There's something important about a place, and this was the place that you would worship God. A couple of weeks ago, I went to an estate sale. How many of you love going into estate sales when you see them down there? Yeah. I think I just like, it's not that I particularly buy a lot of stuff. I just like looking inside of other people's houses, right? And so I walk into this estate sale, and there's a 1946 Tulsa telephone book. Now, my predecessor, who I seem to be enthralled with, J.W. Storer, he was pastor here in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. 1946, I thought, you know, I wonder where J.W. Storer lived. 
So I flipped through the phone book. I found his physical address kind of over in the 25th and Peoria area, wrote down the address. Later that day, I found myself in that area. As I go into that area, these are huge mansion-esque houses. And I thought, I have been ripped off by this church. <laughs> Just saying. But the truth is that, that the address where he lived no longer exists. That tells me that house was built down and these larger houses were built probably in, in their place, probably pulled some of these lots together. But I, there's something special about that place. Well, God was said to live in the temple in Jerusalem. But once you went to the temple, there was more. Not only do you go to the place, you have to talk to the right person. There's a priest. And his job was to stand between you and God. He would talk to you for God and... He would talk for you to God. He would kind of be that intermediary, right? You have to talk to a priest. I am not your priest. Okay. Some of you seem relieved by that. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Lord, right? The job of a priest is to stand between you and God. I'm a pastor. My job is to make sure you're standing face-to-face -face with Jesus, and my job is to stand behind you and often to encourage and to guide. By the way, here's where I want to address a little bit of a pet peeve. I think as pastors, we need to recapture the fact that we are called to be shepherds, not celebrities. Because if I become a celebrity, all of a sudden now I'm putting myself in front of you and I'm blocking your view of Jesus. Your job is to meet Jesus face to face, and my job is to stand behind you and help in that matter that whether you turn to the right or the left, you'll hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, Isaiah 31. But back then, you go to the place, you talk to a priest, and you better bring an offering with you. And this was a blood sacrifice. In other words, you had to pay a price to get in and to meet with God. There had to be the shedding of blood for you to qualify to go in and meet with him. So here's the beautiful thing I want you to see. You can meet with God. You can meet God. But you don't have to go to a certain place. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to pay a certain price. That has been done for us in the person of Jesus. This is a beautiful thing, and he is our means by which we meet God. So with that in mind, Hebrews 9, verse 1. For the first covenant had regulations for worship and also for earthly sanctuary. The tabernacle, you could also read that as the temple was set up. And if you read verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, it's all about, it's a great little description of the tabernacle or the temple. There's the place. Then when you get to verse 6, when everything had been arranged like this, the priest, there's the person, he entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, the holy of holies, and that only once a year. So you got the place, you got the person, and now here's the price. But he would never enter without blood. The blood of an animal, which he offered for himself, for the sins of the people. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place, the way to meet with God, had not been yet fully disclosed. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. I hope you paid attention to those last words. It didn't work. You could go to the place, you could go meet with the priest, you could go pay the price as often as you wanted to, but you'd have to come back year after year after year. 
You're having a reminder of your sin. It was performing a ritual. But what did not result was a restored relationship with God. That was inaccessible until Jesus. And here's the beautiful thing. Now you can meet God. And you can meet with God through Him. Because... Jesus has now paid our price. I want you to look down. We're going to sit on one verse for a while. This is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? This verse might not seem like much right now, but we're going to walk through it for the next few moments because what is here is the way by which we can meet God. So let's start with the blood of Christ. already talked about this a little bit this morning, but if you step into a church from the outside, it really is odd, right, that we sing a lot about blood and we talk a lot about blood. In fact, let me just sample two hymns for you. And just imagine this. Listen to this as an outsider looking in. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from… Am I the only one that that sounds a little bit creepy? I don't mean to be irreverent, but I remember that old Sissy Spacek movie, Carrie, and that prom scene, and there's just blood everywhere, you know. I'm glad you giggled. First service, they're so young, they had no idea what movie I was talking about. Okay. Thank you for being old with me, right? Are you washed in the blood? Okay. That just seems rather dark. And if you're from the outside looking in, all of this seems a little bit morbid and a little bit grotesque, and it's not meant to be that at all. So I took some time to go through the New Testament and to read just about every reference I could find on the blood of Christ, on the blood of Jesus, okay, and to say, what does the blood do? And I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list, but this is pretty much the highlights of it. The blood of Jesus brings about the forgiveness of our sins. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So whatever else the blood does, it brings about the power to forgive sin. But it's more than that. Not only does the blood have power to forgive us of our sins, but the blood of Jesus also frees us from our sin. And I'm not freeze, not like cold, freeze as in liberate. It frees us from our sin. And by the way, we're going to take some time here in just a moment and unpack these three a little bit more because they're all in this verse. But we're, we're forgiven of our sin. We can be freed from our sin. This is Revelation 1.5. We have been freed from our sins by His blood. And then not only are we forgiven, not only are we freed, but those who are far away from God can now meet Him. Again, seven times in the book of Hebrews, it says, draw near to God, draw near to God, draw near to God. I'm trying to make sure we see that beautiful thing that you can meet God. Those who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ Ephesians 2, verse 13. A couple of years ago, I was called to a house late at night. There had been 
a domestic accident in which a family member had unexpectedly and tragically died. Not a phone call you want to get. In fact, when I saw the person on caller ID, I said, hey, how's it going? They said, not good. Can you come over? By the time I got there, the body of the deceased had already been picked up. As I sat with the family that remained, what I noticed that on the man's shirt was his family member's blood. Still there, he hadn't changed his shirt yet. And all I could think during that entire time is, what a waste. What a tragic accident. Nothing good will come of this. It was just a senseless accident. Listen to me. Christ's blood has not been wasted. It was very purposeful what he did. And every single drop was shed for our forgiveness, for our freedom, and that those who are far away may meet God. Amen. So, how much more than the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself. I want to sit here on these words for just a moment because this is a grand reversal of every sacrifice you saw in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. So just think with me here for just a moment. In the Older Covenant, the priest knew exactly what he was doing. He was following the commands of God to sacrifice this animal on this certain day to cut the vein to give out this blood, to give this piece of meat for a fellowship offering, to burn this as a holocaust offering. He knew exactly what he was doing down to the last detail. The priest understood what he was doing, but the animal, whether the goat, the sheep, the head of cattle, was completely clueless. The animal had no clue what was happening, and had it known, probably wouldn't want to be a part of this, right? So the priest understood, the sacrifice didn't. When it comes to the blood of Jesus, those roles were reversed. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was offering, his blood and why. And it's those who were making the sacrifice. By the way, it was Jews and Gentiles alike. It was the Roman government and the Jewish leaders. They had no clue what they were doing. See how that's a grand reversal? Those who are making the sacrifice didn't understand. The sacrifice himself did. In fact, Jesus himself said, Father, forgive them for they have no idea what they're doing. So that still applies a bit to us today because we take by faith that Jesus' blood brings forgiveness and freedom. And for those who are far away from God to be brought near we know that it does that, but we don't understand how. And there's some theories, there's some theology behind that. But really, how does his blood accomplish that? And I still struggle to understand that. But here's what I know. I don't need to understand how something works in order to understand that it does work. For instance, every time I send a text message, I have no idea how digital technology works. No clue but I know it works. This morning I'm talking to you through a microphone and frequencies and sound boards and I have no idea how this mechanism works, but I know it works. I drove downtown in a car this morning. I really have no idea how that thing works, but I don't have to understand how to appreciate that it works. So, if you'll notice, the balance of this verse, the blood of Christ, which he offered it kind of plays out those three themes. 
that we've already talked about. He offered Himself unblemished to God. How much more will that cleanse our consciences? We can be forgiven. I'm looking for some lawyers around the room. So lawyers know this. They're in court quite a bit, and when they swear you in, you raise your right hand. Now, there's several reasons we do this, but the most prevalent theory as to where this comes from goes back to 17th century London. Records weren't digitized. In fact, they had a real rough time keeping records back in the day. But what they would often do is if you were convicted of a felony or murder, they would brand your face with a letter. If you were a murderer, they'd brand an M right here. If you were a felon, they'd brand an F right here. Someone along the way said, that's a little bit too cruel. That literally will scar somebody the rest of their lives. Why don't we start putting it on the palm of their hand? And so when you went to testify in court to let them know your background check was clean or not, they would say, raise your right hand. And there was your sin for everyone to see. Listen, we've all been branded as sinners. Uh, I make people cringe every time I say this. Maybe that's why I keep saying it. I don't know. I have broken every one of the Ten Commandments. And so have you. If you think you haven't, just look at the way Jesus defines and redefines. We've all broken them. We've all been branded as sinners. And so when we go and stand before God and he says, raise your hand, here we go. Jesus goes, nope. Don't look at Darren's hand. And Jesus says, look at mine. Instead of looking at the brand of my sin, God sees the scar of sacrifice, and Jesus testifies our forgiveness on our behalf. In Him is forgiveness of sins. Okay? He cleanses our conscience from acts that lead to death. So not only now is there forgiveness, but now we have freedom, not that, and here's what I think where we get Christianity backwards. When Christianity, we often say, you can't commit these sins. Did that sound mean enough? I'm just not good at that. Instead, what we should be saying is, you don't have to live that way anymore. You don't have to sin anymore. Gary Richman is a, a veterinarian, and he's also a follower of Jesus, and he's taken a lot of his stories and made some spiritual parallels uh, with them. He tells a story of going into an enclosure at a zoo in which a king cobra snake was sick. If I had a king cobra snake that was sick, it would die. I would say, yep, oh, just looks like he's not going to make it. Too bad. We did what we could, you know. But Gary Richmond's a vet. That's his job. So they go in, seven people go into this enclosure, and the king cobra comes out expands its cape, begins to choose its target, and seven descend on this king cobra at once. Now, while the vet is performing the procedure on the snake's eye, Gary Richmond, his task was to take paper towels and wad them up and stick them in the king cobra's mouth. That's not the job I would want. Because as he was doing this, the king cobra was gnashing down on the paper towels, and venom was flowing everywhere. Listen, one injection from a king cobra can kill an adult elephant. A human has never survived a full injection of king cobra venom. They drain the venom sacs. Here's why, and here's the insight from Gary Richmond. He says more people are born or killed trying to let go of the snake than when they grab on. It's easy to grab onto the snake, but it's hard to let go of. Isn't that sin? 
Boy, especially if you've dealt with addiction. So easy to grab onto. Man, you try to let it go, and it's going to bite you. Here's what Jesus does. He takes that old snake, Satan, and he takes him in his hands. And he says, I got it. I got him. Now let go. And he takes the injection, the, the venom of death on our behalf. We don't have to hold on to that sin anymore. So there's forgiveness. There's also freedom. So here, though, I want to take just a moment and talk about repentance because when you come to Christ, we ask God to forgive us of our sins. But also, I believe that repentance is a daily exercise. And I think we tell people, oh, you need to continually ask for God's forgiveness, but we don't give a good understanding of how to, to actually do that. So listen, listen very carefully. The best way to repent of a sin is right after you commit it. <laughs> Boy, if you know you've done it, own it, okay? But repentance is kind of a two-step process, okay? First, it's confessing. And the confessing pretty much just sounds like this. I know I was wrong. And we live in a world right now where we make excuses, we give explanations, and it's really hard for the human heart to admit we're wrong. But listen, you will never have freedom. You'll never feel that restoration unless you say, I was wrong. I messed up. But you're not done yet because repentance is not only confession, but it's also making a choice not to go back there again. Say, I'm turning my life in a different direction. A little bit of a disclosure here. The way I've started saying that in my own life recently is say I see a scantily clad woman walk by me and I'm tempted to turn and look. Now, if that some of you scandalizes, if that scandalizes you that your pastor would turn and look, can I remind you, I was a man before I was a Baptist pastor. <laughs> okay. Sometimes being a pastor, you, you, you sense that everyone emasculates you. You know, I was a man. I still am, by the way. So a scantily clad woman goes by. I'm tempted to turn and look. What I've started saying to myself lately is this. That's not who I am anymore. Now, that's who I used to be. And... <laughs> And more than I like, that's still who I am at times. But that's not who I am anymore. And it's turning and it's moving in another direction. Listen, stop trying to manage sin on your own. You can't manage it. You need the power of God in order to help you overcome. And so as we mess up and as we repent, as we confess, as we make choices, cry out to God if you're dealing with something, whether it's an addiction or just a signature sin. A few years ago, my son was five or six years old, he was playing with his brother out in the backyard, got hit in the face with a basketball, ran inside, went up to my wife and said, I, I need to talk to dad, I need to talk to dad. So she dials my cell phone number here at the church and I pick up the phone. When I do, he's just screaming in the phone for a solid minute. No words, just, ah! took a breath, ah! Did the same thing a third time and then hung up. <laughs> and I'm sitting at work going, man, I'm really glad I'm at work today. <laughs> I am really glad. I knew I'd get the story when I got home. Anybody who ever tells you stay-at-home moms don't work, they lie. They lie. Cry out to God. But also realize you have other brothers and sisters in Christ to help you experience freedom from sin. 
Ladies, I know bitterness is a constant emotional issue. You have other women that you can lean on. Men, pornography is an ongoing issue. You have other men you can lean on as you go through that and as you grow through that. Some of you remember the name Joe Namath. Back in the day when he was playing football under Bear Bryant, the winningest coach of his era, um, Bear Bryant was really chewing out the football players. And he said, we're going to have a team of winners, not a team of losers. Just don't be a bunch of losers. When you show up to practice, practice hard. When we travel as a team, shine your shoes, wear your tie. When we're on campus, go to class. I don't want a team of dummies. He said, if you want to be a team of dummies, stand up right now. And Joe Namath stood up. And Bear Bryant goes, Joe, why are you standing up? You're not a dummy. He said, no, oh, coach, I just didn't want you standing here all by yourself. <laughs> yeah. It's good that he was a winning quarterback, right? You don't have to stand by yourself. Okay. So we have forgiveness. We have the freedom from sin. Then look at this last part. So that we may serve the living God. You don't have to live far away from God. Here's the beautiful thing I want us to see today. You can meet God. And you can live life in God right now, today. I want you to see a picture. Uh, Bill, if you would, you put that up there for me. If, I've shown this picture occasionally. Actually, this is a brand new version of a picture that I've often shown. A friend of mine from Texas recently went to New York City, and he went inside St. Patrick's Cathedral there on Fifth Avenue. And if you've been there before, you know out in front of the cathedral, across the street, is that iconic statue of Atlas. He's a perfectly proportioned man, and he is holding the world on his shoulders. The weight of the world literally is on his back. So then you go into St. Patrick's Cathedral, cross the street, go in, scoot around behind the high altar, and you see this statue of Jesus. So if you can see this, and I'll put this on social media later today so you can see it, but you see the open glass doors center top. You can just make out the silhouette of Atlas. But then behind the high altar is this statue of the little boy Jesus, seven, eight years old, and he's holding the world in one cupped hand, with ease, I may add. You know what? There are two ways to live your life. You can carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. By the way, many people are doing that today, and it's killing them. Or you can give your whole world to Jesus. Let him carry it, and you meet God. How do we get there? The blood of Jesus. The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanses our conscience. We're forgiven. From acts that lead to death, we're free so that we may serve the living God. We no longer have to be far away. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks so much for listening to our weekly message podcast. At the end of each worship service on Sunday morning, I offer a simple blessing, and I offer that blessing to you today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, and may God grant you peace, both now and forever. Amen.